Anyway, uh, grab your Bible. <clears throat> Make your way, as Dave was already in Matthew 18, we're going to be wrapping up Matthew chapter 18 this morning. We're going to be beginning in verse 1. And we are actually looking at a parable as well this morning. Uh, the parable we're looking at is known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's a parable that was prompted by a question from Peter, who seems to be beginning to understand what Jesus has been teaching leading up to this parable. Is, uh, he's taught about restoring individuals who's wandered away from the Lord using the parable of the lost sheep. And uh, we look at that in Luke as well in the parable of the lost coin. He, he's, Peter's learning about this restoration and this reconciliation that we are to have with a brother and sister in Christ who may have wandered away from the fold, wandered away from church. Uh, several years ago, it's probably been about 10 or 11, the History Channel put out a, a movie, a documentary movie, and it went on for three nights and is known as the Hatfields and McCoys. It's a movie that depicts two families on the state line of West Virginia and Kentucky, who began this massive feud with one another. Blood began to be spilt. People were getting shot and killed. And it, it deals with several main issues that these families had with one another. But what history tells us is it all started over a lawsuit over a hog. A judge eventually voted for one family uh, to have the, the hog or to pay for the hog. Uh, and that was based upon a witness that was in the courtroom. What happened after the judge made his declaration, two individuals of the McCoys went and killed the guy who gave the testimony, who was related to both families, the Hatfields and McCoys, and it ignited this feud. They went on for about 30 years, and several incidences followed within the family that they, be, like I said, began killing each other, and it escalated to the point that it went on for 30 years and is documented that there were at least 12 deaths that happened within this feud. Now, in the movie documentary, the depiction of the heads of both families is that they were both God-fearing men, and they led their, their families through the Word of God. Both of them are seen in church. Ironically, they went to the same church. Uh, they're seen as people who uh, used the Word of God to defend what they were doing and how they were treating one another, uh, but they seem to have forgotten a, or a foundational truth of Christianity, which would have helped this feud to stop before it began to erupt. And what we learn from the Hatfields and McCoys as well in life is the truth of what this parable is going to bring out today, and it's easy to understand when we look at this parable, but the reality is it's very difficult to execute it's very difficult to make decisions and respond to people the way God teaches us here in His Word. But what we also see in this parable, that is, if we don't put the principle of this parable into our life, it will lead to a lot of destruction within our relationships with people and devastating results within our own heart. The parable we're looking at is an extension, again, of the teachings that Jesus has been giving leading up to this Again, with the parable of the lost sheep, where we learn that the Lord has joy when individuals return to his presence. It led to Jesus teaching about individuals reconciling with one another when a believer is struggling with sin. And this whole issue began with the dispute between the disciples. 
as they were arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest, who is most favored. They were having this Pharisee mentality that they could rise up within the ranks. And what we need to all understand is the reason people hurt other people in the world and the reason we get hurt by people is because individuals live outside the will of God. They live in sin and they live out their sinful nature. We all at, at times have all wandered away from God. And at times we've all sinned against God and gone against His ways and His will. And our initial reaction when people do that to us is to get even. But God tells us that's not the reaction we have, is that we're to reconcile. We're to have a heart of forgiveness. And that's typically hard because we got this thing inside of us, all of us do at some point in time. I want to teach them a lesson. I want to put them in their place. Typically, we want to let other people know how bad that individual is because of what they've done and how bad the situation is that they've put us in and how they've treated us. We tend to act that we want that individual to get what they deserve. But that's not what God teaches us. Sort of reaction, what it does, it reveals more about our heart than actually the situation or the sin that has happened to us. And this is what we come into here in verse 21 that Peter is struggling with. He's starting to get this idea, okay, this is different. This is different than what I've been brought up with. This is different than what I've been taught. And so Peter approaches Jesus here in verse 21. And Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Then Peter is beginning to understand that He's supposed to be a type of individual that is to offer forgiveness. He's supposed to be a type of individual that is to seek reconciliation, even though someone may have done something wrong. He's starting to understand that forgiveness is something that has to be given, and, and we have to seek to work things out with other people. But Peter wants to know, how far? comes to Jesus, and the question could be read is, okay, Jesus, I get it. We're supposed to be forgiving people, but when do we cut them off? When is the forgiveness credit ceiling hit? When's enough enough? When, when can I stop? So Peter is struggling with what I think many of us would struggle with. Felt it wasn't practical. It's not in his best interest to continue to forgive someone who continues to do something wrong. He questions, how does this work? Jesus, when is enough? When can I stop? When, it, when does it come to the point that I'm just being naive when does it come to the point that I'm actually being taken advantage of? See, Peter grew up as a Jewish boy. And the Jews held to the custom that three times. Three times is sufficient. We might think of it like a, a baseball analogy. Three strikes and you're out. Well, they didn't have baseball, but that's the way Peter grew up. Three times, that's the ceiling. 
And here's this teaching about Jesus, about reconciliation and forgiveness and people returning in the joy of the Lord when they return. And he's trying to reconcile that in his head. Because this is what I was taught. So how far do I have to go with this? Because he's understanding that Jesus' teaching is to go above and beyond what was normal. And Peter, we can understand that he understands that because he doesn't say three times Jesus. He goes to seven. The number seven in the Jewish life was a number of perfection. It was a number of completeness. Peter understands, okay, you're calling me to something greater than what the norm is. You're calling me to something greater than what I've been taught and what I've been around and what I experience and what I see. Yet at the same time, he has this, this battle going on. There's got to be a time when you stop. Eventually, there's got to be a time where you just cut it off and you say, that's it, I'm done. And so Jesus, or Peter comes to Jesus here in verse 21, and he's saying, okay, Jesus, I need you to define it. I need you to tell me when I can stop raising this forgiveness, this debt ceiling. It's irrational. And so Jesus brings an answer in verse 22. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And I read from the English Standard Version. The reading from the English Standard Version isn't entirely accurate. You probably have a different reading if you're reading from a different version of the Bible. The reading in the Greek says 70 times 7. With that answer, if we do the math, okay, that means 490 times. So I have to forgive someone 490 times. The problem is Jesus doesn't give this number or this multiplication problem for us to calculate it out. So this leads to the question, why does Jesus even give a number? Well, if we were to keep track of how many times we forgave someone, and we did that point where we're tallying it up, we're doing an inventory, and we say, all right, I've hit 490. I don't have to forgive them anymore. I did just as Jesus told me to do. I forgave them 490 times, and now it's done. The problem with that is we've missed the point of what Jesus is getting to, and he's going to bring it out within this parable. Because if we were to tally 490 times that we forgave someone, the reality is we really haven't forgave them. We really haven't let it go. We really haven't allowed the Spirit to deal with our hearts. And what we've allowed to happen is we've allowed bitterness to grow up. And an unwillingness that we would move on. The answer Jesus gives is meant to imply there is no magic number. There is no limit. There is no amount of forgiveness that we can give. In other words, there is no debt ceiling. Praise God that Peter asked this question because I think it's something we would all wrestle with. And so this moves Jesus in verse 23 to move on to this parable of the unforgiving servant. And Jesus used parables throughout his ministry to illuminate a spiritual truth about God, about what God's Word says about God's kingdom and about our role within that kingdom. And so the unforgiving servant is about God and our reaction actually to him. Let's read in verse 23. Therefore, 
The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. And the reason we know that the number that Jesus gives or the math problem in verse 22 isn't about us tallying how many times we forgive is because of that final statement there in verse 35. If you don't forgive your brother from the heart. Now the parable is pretty easy to understand as we walk through it. Yet within Jesus' own crowd, within his disciples, there's some things that we can miss. So the parable, a summary, the parable is about a master. Some versions say a king. He's calling all of his servants, that word means slaves, his attendees, to come into his room, his throne room, and have their accounts be settled. So basically, the beginning of the parable is the master is balancing his books. Now, as the master is bringing in the servants, one particular servant comes in and has this astronomical debt to be paid. We read 10,000 talents in verse 24. I don't know what uh, your scripture says, but that may not mean very much to us in 2023. Well, first off, a talent in Jesus' day was a form of compensation. It was done by weight, and it can be made a weight of silver or gold. So if this was a silver talent, which this slave owned, his debt would be $7.5 million in today's currency. If it was a gold talent, which he owned to, owed to his master, the debt would be 10 to $12 million that he owed to this master. And so the collusion, as Jesus throws out this figure, is this man had more than a life debt. That's why the master moves that he's going to sell him. He's going to sell his wife. He's going to sell his children. He's going to sell all the things that he owns. And even in doing that, there's no way all the things that he owns in his family is going to pay for this debt. It was too much. And so the servant's response is that he falls on his knees. He humbles himself before his master. He begs and he pleads for more time, but he gives a false promise because there's no way he can pay back this debt. The reading in verse 26 implied that the servant fell face down before the king. 
He knew the debt was too great. He knew he could never repay it. So he comes seeking the master's mercy. It didn't matter what the servant would do for the rest of his life. It didn't matter if his wife did something to earn an income and his children did something to earn an income. There's no way he's going to pay this debt. Curious part of the parable is, and what would have taken everyone who heard it by surprise, though it's a massive amount, the master has pity. He has mercy. Mercy is giving something that we don't deserve. He shows compassion. And in a single moment, the master looks at this servant on his knees or on his face. And in a single moment, he wipes the debt clean. Now, a listener in Jesus' day heard this and been astonished. They would have been amazed. We put it in our, our day-to-day if you own a home, say you come upon hard times and you're not able to make the house payment. And so you do what a lot of people do when they come upon hard times and they're trying to make ends meet, they, they skip a payment. And then they maybe skip another one. And eventually what's going to happen is the bank's going to start to call. And they're going to send someone out because technically when we're making house payments, guess who actually owns the house? The bank. They're just kind of leasing it out to us till we can pay back the debt. We may live in it, but they have the deed. Let's say that continues to go on. We're just so far behind on our payments. we got so much debt building up. And when the bank calls, we ask if we can make some sort of settlement. Can we do something where we can lower the payment, where we can finally get back up to where we need to be, because we're scrapping together to make ends meet, but if we can just lower the payment, we'll start making it. And so as you're on the phone with the bank in that sort of situation, they issue out a threat. We're going to take everything you own. We're going to kick you and your family out because we have to make back the money that we've lost in trusting that you are actually going to pay it back. And in hearing that, you come to a point where you're just in fear. You don't know what to do. You're lacking understanding on, on what's the next step. And so you beg the bank, just give me a little bit more time. And then out of the blue, the bank says, you know, we believe you. We see that you're going through hard times. So just take the house. Whatever you owe, considered it paid. Whatever is left, Considered it paid in full. The house is now yours. Now, if you're making house payments and you had that sort of conversation with your bank, how would you feel? I think we'd be pretty happy. We'd probably be confused. What in the world just happened? We would probably call up our friends and our neighbors and tell them what just transpired. We'd be dumbfounded, not understanding. That just doesn't happen. Our hearts would be full with joy. This massive debt is now gone. See, and Jesus is telling this parable, this is, should have been the logical conclusion for the initial servant. But in verse 28 of the parable, Jesus says the servant who just had this massive life debt wiped clean, he goes out and finds one of his fellow servants, someone who also has fallen on hard times. 
someone who owes him. And being that the first servant just got liberated from this dead, we would think that he would just go out and start liberating others, forgiving them and canceling their debt. I mean, he has no more debt. He has nothing else to pay. He's been given this fresh and this new start, yet this servant in the parable goes and confronts the servant who owes him, which we're told in verse 28 is, he owes him a hundred denarii. Again, we may not know, okay, I don't know how much that is. Compared to our, our, our money today, a denarii is worth about 16 to 18 cents. So his fellow servant owed him about 20 bucks. The guy who just been freed of millions goes after this other guy who owes him 20 bucks. And instead of expressing joy that his debt has now been paid, he goes and he grabs his servant by the neck. It's supposed to imply that he did it violently to choke him. And even though the servant pleads with him just like he pleaded with his master, instead of showing him mercy and showing him compassion, he throws him in jail. Now as the onlookers are watching, they're baffled. I mean, the news of the first servant's immense canceled debt had become street knowledge at this point in time. Yet they witnessed he's unwilling to cancel the smallest debts to another individual who's been in a similar predicament that he had been in. He has been in hard times, been unable to pay what he owes. Eventually, the event makes the news back to the master. And he hears of the action of the first servant, and it disgusts him. Because the servant received forgiveness. The problem was he was unwilling to offer forgiveness. The point of the parable is this. The master in the parable is our Lord. And he is holy. He is separate from us. He is distinct and perfect. The servant is us. We're born into sin. We're born with a debt we cannot pay. And in our recognition of our sin and our mistakes, our, our white lies, our secrets, they're all before a holy God. And so we come before him like this servant and we plead for forgiveness. We plead for pity mercy and compassion. And when we come before a holy God pleading, you know what he does? He cancels the debt. He considers it paid. He looks at us not in our sin, not in our debt, but he looks at us through his Son who paid it in full. And so we can therefore stand before a holy God forgiven from a massive life debt which we would never be able to pay in the first place. Even more incredible, this forgiveness isn't just for today. It's not for tomorrow. It's not for next week. It's not from, for last month or last year. This, this forgiveness is for all our years to come and goes into eternity. Our debt has been wiped clean, not because we deserved it, but because God showed us pity. And mercy. The lesson of the parables then, how can we, who have been forgiven so much, turn around and be unwilling to forgive others? 
no matter the circumstances, even if it seems like a big deal in our life. Comparison to eternity and the debt we owe to the Father, it's very minute. An unforgiving spirit reveals more about our heart than it does about the situation. And coming back to the parable in verse 34, the master hears of what has taken place. The, un, the first servant is unwilling to forgive, so he throws him to the jailers. And that would be bad enough, but the word that is used here by Jesus is more than just throwing him into jail. It means torturers, tormentors. These individuals would take a prisoner and they would stretch him out by their limbs. They would gouge out their eyes. And they would skin them to the point that they'd still be alive, but they'd be in excruciating pain. That's the word that Jesus used. It's graphic. And this is just the sort of life that represents an unforgiving individual. They are blinded by their own hearts. They are skinned of all love and left only with bitterness and pain. These types of individuals are not fun to be around. These are the type of individuals that we would become if we're unwilling to forgive. There's a danger in holding on to pain or the feeling of being wronged. And again, I know it may feel like a big deal, and most likely it is to you when you're going through that situation, but as a brother and sister in Christ, we have to look at the offense in the scope of eternity. What impact is this situation of me wanting to settle the score, having on my heart, what impact is it doing in keeping my eyes off Jesus? How is it affecting me today? How is it going to affect me tomorrow? How is it going to affect my relationship with other people? Here's the thing we have to understand about forgiveness, and I think we misdefine forgiveness. Forgiveness is not forgetting. We say, you know, forgive and forget. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is letting go. It's impossible for us to forget things. And this is how I know, because there'll be, there's been situations in my time in ministry with certain individuals that have hurt my heart, and I've let that go. But then I'll run into an individual that reminds me of them in the past, and then sometimes I initially jump to a conclusion, they're going to be just like them. And so forgiveness is not, oh, I'm going to forget this, because it's going to be in our hearts, it's going to be in our mind. Forgiveness is saying, I'm going to let this go. I'm not going to let this situation, this individual, this, this hurt or this pain continue to impact my life, and so I'm going to move on, and I'm going to move on with God, because God let go of my sin. He removed it completely so that I could have a restored relationship with him. Forgiveness means that we're not going to seek to even or settle the scores. And it takes a very big individual to say that they're going to forgive. It takes a very little individual to say they're going to throw a temper tantrum. The question it brings us is, is there someone in your life you need to forgive? Is there someone that you just... You need to let something go. 
And I understand there are issues which arise that you know, sometimes you've got to work through those things. Sometimes you may have to go to a counselor. Sometimes you may have to seek reconciliation and, and pray. But if we allow an unforgiving heart to grow, it's going to eat us alive. And instead of rejoicing on our salvation, it will drive us outside the will of God. We also need to understand today is that the servant have a massive debt. It's a debt that's to reveal our massive debt to God. Like I said, we're all born in sin. It's a debt that is beyond any means for us to pay. We can't be good enough. We can't go to church enough. We can't sing enough. We can't read the Bible enough. We can't memorize Scripture enough. We cannot pay this debt. But here's the good news. It's already been paid in full. There's a hymn. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. And an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. I know it's a hymn and it may be a new song for some of you. But if you know the chorus, would you sing it with me? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. You know, an unforgiving heart will keep you from living. But he lives and he forgave us all. So we can let it go. Today, if you're here and you've not had your debt canceled, you've not been forgiven because you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that song says he lives. And because he lives, you can now be completely debt-free before a holy God. You're no longer seen as a sinner, but a saint. No longer seen as an enemy, but a child. And God has made it incredibly important and incredibly easy to have your sin debt wiped out. It begins by admitting to God that you are, in fact, a sinner. You've done things you're not proud of. Maybe you've done things to people you're not proud of. But believing what we just sang, that Jesus Christ came to this earth, he lived a perfect life. They put him on a cross, and he died. He took the full wrath of God for your sin. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show that he has the power over death and the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. The Bible says when we believe in our heart that to be truth and that God, in fact, loves us that much, we have to confess it with our mouth that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord and Savior, and we need him to be Lord and Savior in our life. If you're here this morning, you've yet to make that confession of faith. We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to be standing right here. I'm just going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. I need my debt to be wiped clean. 
But maybe you're here and you're, you're going through a situation. And you realize that in your heart, you haven't had a heart of forgiveness. Maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father and plead with the Master. Lord, give me the heart I need. We're going to pray together. I'm going to ask our worship leaders to come back up front and lead us in a song. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth this parable captures, Lord, and how much you loved us, how much you forgave us. Lord, let us have a heart that imitates you, that we would forgive one another, we would forgive others, and we wouldn't be chained or jailed to that. Father, there's no one here this morning who needs to begin a relationship with you found only through Jesus Christ. I pray that your spirit come upon them and they will walk down this aisle. As you continue to be glorified and your will and kingdom continue to come as we sing this song to you and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.